Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined today by Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament, uh, Ms. Jennifer Patterson, who is our director of theology, the Institute of Theology and Public Life. Dr. Peter Lee, our Dean of Students, and uh, my fellow professor of Old Testament. And we have a special guest today, uh, Alicia Akins, who is a member of our uh, community here at RTS Washington. She is an author and a writer in her own right. Uh, She describes herself as a recovering expat, which I can sympathize with that, having lived overseas a good bit and being back in the United States and trying to figure out what that means. She also is involved in the deacon ministry down at Grace DC downtown, but important for our conversation today, she is the author of the new book that just was released last week, Invitations to Abundance, How the Feasts of the Bible Nourish Us Today. Welcome and thanks for being with us, Alicia. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Um, There's a lot to talk about in this book, and and I have a lot of vested interest in this conversation about biblical feasts, and I want to get to that. But one thing that I want to to jump into first, before we get into the book, um, any reader of this book is going to be struck by the delightful style of the prose, your, your delightful ability to be a wordsmith and to craft words in ways that are compelling and devotional and nourishing. So I actually want to start, before we jump into the book, I want to start with this kind of broader question. How did you get to where you are as an author? Okay. And and, and I'm praising you. You're not praising yourself. So you can just go ahead and say it. Okay. Um, You know, what, what, tell tell us a little bit about the journey that you've been on that brought you to the place where you're now publishing books on biblical feasts. This is probably not the answer maybe people want or, and I don't say this to be trite, but I do feel like um, God had a lot to do with it. So my undergraduate degree was in music and all of my assessments were having to play something or tap something or um, listen to music and say when it was written, who it was written by, things like that. So I think I had to write one paper in college one or two people, like I didn't have a lot of um, training with writing as an undergrad. And then my master's degree was in China studies. And um, a lot of my assessments for that were uh, were translating things or um, taking tests on geography or writing short essay answers about a particular issue. I did have to write a few more papers for that. And I had to write two long papers to graduate. And they were not very good, (laughs) but they let me graduate. (laughs) So I have never really thought of myself as a writer, and I didn't originally have aspirations to write a book. I did know that I wasn't a good writer. And so I think I put a lot more effort into trying to um, improve. So when I was in grad school, I started a, a writing group of other graduate students where we could show each other our papers before we handed them in. And I... I wanted to give them recommendations of things that they could read to improve their writing. So I read, I made a long list of books on writing and I read them and then I chose some to um, recommend to everyone else in the group. 
So when I was in grad school, I did a lot of reading about writing, even though I wasn't doing a lot of writing. And then when I, I lived overseas, as you mentioned before, in Laos, and um, I was working in a museum there. And I was really interested in sort of positioning myself to rise in the ranks of people who work in museums. And there was an opportunity to have a writing fellowship um, with a arts policy think tank in the States, uh, a virtual one. So I applied for that and was selected, and I got to work with um, editorial staff of their um, the publication that they produced. And I think actually, honestly, being edited is probably the one of the best things that has happened to my writing. Mm-hmm. I almost quit that opportunity towards the end because it was really hard, and I was like, I'm just not, you know, I'm just not a writer, <laughs> and this is taking too much time and too much effort. And they were like, you're so close to finishing, you should just finish. So I did, and it was really valuable being edited. So if I had to say one thing that was particularly helpful, it was being edited. And then um, fast forward a few years into DC, I, um, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more later, I lost my job and um, I was going through, and I had an extended period of unemployment. And during that time, I started to write more on my blog about processing what I was going through, sort of not having the material comforts or the stability that I used to have. Um, And some people in my small group are like, oh, Alicia, you're kind of like, your writing is really powerful. So I created what I called a nonfiction Christian writing class. I went on the internet and I found a bunch of syllabi for MFA programs in writing and a bunch of like resources from um, seminaries and their writing like programs if they had them and look to see like if I was going to make my own class on how to become a better writer, which of these resources would I use? So I made, I, I, I really like doing stuff like this. So I made my own syllabus based on the syllabi that I found online. And then I put it on my calendar. It was like Tuesday and Thursday night I had class. And that was like when I was in my room and I was going through the resources, whether it was listening to a podcast or doing a, they have some like massive open online courses that you can take on writing. And so I would, I did a couple of those. I bought a bunch of books and I read through them and I, I got together a team of people to um, assess my writing. Uh, so like every few months I would send them short pieces and ask them to like comment on the clarity of the piece or the impact of the piece or different things like that. And it was a couple of friends who had backgrounds in editing and a couple of friends who had background and backgrounds in seminary. And so I feel like after that, I felt a little bit more comfortable writing for leisure (laughs) in a way that people could connect with. Still not good at writing for class or academic things or anything like that. But um, that kind of more devotional writing, I felt like I felt a little more comfortable with after that process. So I, I think I maybe did that for like eight months or so. And then I joined a writing group with people that I met from Twitter and we would pass around different like essays that we were going to pitch to different literary um, journals or different websites or things like that. And again, just getting edited and things like that was really helpful. So I'd say that's huh. sort of my my journey which is maybe non-traditional <laughs> i'm not i'm not a huge reader um i i have read a lot about writing and listened to a lot of podcasts and made use of resources that are free that i could find and uh been edited a lot and even editing other people i feel like has made me a better writer yeah. 
So how fascinating, Alicia, that what you that God has grown a ministry of devotional writing out of something that you perceive to be a weakness. And you therefore approached it with humility and submitted yourselves to the critique, yourself to the critique of others and invited that, the corporate aspect of that. And you are now um, really gifting it to the church. This, I was taken by this sentence in your, in your introduction. After a long season of hardship, I felt glued to God's table. And that's such a, an evocative expression that we'd love for you to unpack. But I'm, I'm focusing on the first part of it, that it was the crucible of difficulty that made you come in a new way to God's word. Um, this learning of the exercise of writing and the way that you approached that uh, with such humility is, has been the source now of, of abundance. <laughs> you're, you're, you're overflowing to others. I think that's really neat. And I'm, so maybe you could just expand on some of that, that the spiritual aspects of the journey towards this, this writing process. Yeah, so I, sort of always processed what was going on with me spiritually through writing, whether it was journaling just, you know, for myself that I'm reading, or um, I used to send a pretty informal prayer letter to a group of women who I've like friendships that I've collected over the years from different places um, for 10 years. And like, when I would move, I would add people from the new location. And like some of the people would swap out, but some of the people have stayed the same. And one of the women on that email list was like, your, your emails are really good. <laughs> I think I, I mentioned her first in my acknowledgements because she was like, you're going to write a book. And I was like, I'm, I think I'll stick to emails. But, um, <laughs> the I literary think, email. <laughs> the literary email. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, but so those emails that I was sending to friends with updates about how I was doing became really important as I was processing through things. So I used to be um, a missionary in China. And when I came back to the States, I went through a really difficult sort of dark night of the soul experience for like about three years, where I, the only reason I was still a Christian really was because of my experience as a missionary. I didn't want to believe that God was real, but I had seen things on the mission field that I couldn't otherwise explain. And so I like, my mom and family said they didn't recognize me anymore. I didn't really want people to talk to me about God because he, he wasn't doing things in my life that I wanted him to do. But my emails, I continued to email my friends, basically just like, I'm having a really hard time said more eloquently than that. But um, I was doing a lot of processing with a smaller group of people about this period of darkness that I went through and would go back and look at those even after coming out of that period and be able to use the emails that I had sent about what I was going through to encourage other people. So there are some portions actually of those emails that are in the book that are just like rewritten in a different way. Um, but so a lot of that came from just writing through dark periods. And as I mentioned before, the um, that time that I was particularly glued to God's table, it wasn't necessarily that time that I was just talking about. I continued to go to church then, but I would just sit in the corner and cry. I wasn't, you know, I was going because I knew God was real. Um, but that was kind of the extent of it. It was the period um, where I felt really glued to God's table was um, when I, after I lost my job, 
So I had, I'd been unemployed twice before when I came back to the States after being in China. And when I came back to the States after being in Laos, and those were like a few months that I was trying to find a new job, but this was sort of my first time being unemployed with no, re no good reason for it. <laughs> and there was one month that I didn't have enough money for food. Um, and I was just like going around my room, finding coins, um, to buy groceries at the dollar store or to like buy a, like the heaviest box of uh, junk food I could find at the dollar store. And there was like two months I couldn't pay rent. Um, and I was concerned during that time that I would sort of regress and um, go back into a period of darkness. But I feel like that was the sort of brightest period of my life in terms of my relationship with God. And it was not something that I could explain. Like, it's not like my devotionals were better during this time than they were, you know, before, but like, I felt really held and I felt really provided for in other ways. Um, and I felt like I got to experience all of these other ways that God provides other than just through material means. Um, and so I sort of wrote my way through that period as well. And that's kind of where this book came from, from that period of realizing like, oh, I can, I cannot have a lot of the things that I would prefer to have, but have God near and be really, really satisfied with life. Amen. Let me ask you this. This is another writerly question. As you, you, you said, it was during this time of sort of you know, darkness that you felt the most rich. And then you said, I wrote myself through that, that period. And I'm interested as a writer is writing something that I don't want to say comes easily because that sounds trite. Is it something you enjoy to do and you're drawn back to it? Or is it the kind of thing, you know, the quote, no one likes to write, but people like having written, um, you know, is it that more like that for you or do you really find refuge in writing? I think writing has been a powerful way that I can process what's going on inside of me spiritually. Mm. And so I feel like I, unless I, unless uh, a writing assignment is given to me when I'm doing well, or when like life is calm and it's peace times that I might not write as much as when things are chaotic, either in the world or in, in myself, but I do enjoy writing. And I do, um, I'm quite fond of metaphors and analogies and things like that. Whenever there's those like standardized tests, um, I like do horribly on reading comprehension, but do really well <laughs> on metaphors and things like that. Um, and so I just like the idea of being able to express things in different ways. I think part of that comes from like having studied other languages and seeing like, yeah. oh, hey, this language works in that way. Can I make English work in that way? Or, you know, like I was saying before that readies for more, turning a, a, a noun into a verb. Mm -hmm. uh, I just kind of like testing the flexibility of English and seeing like, yeah. how can I explain this in a way that is able to be understood, but it's non-conventional. That's wonderful. I love it. I think there is something about that cross-cultural experience too, that stretches your ability and maybe opens up your ability to see the world and express the world in a different way. That's so, that, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, Alicia, you, you mentioned earlier, you're, you don't think you're a good academic writer. 
I think that's not true, but um, I, you know, I'm looking at the book and I, you know, I've gotten to read, um, I haven't read it cover to cover, but I've gotten to read a, a good bit of it. And I just really love the, even though it's a, it's a devotional book, it's, it, you know, it has that kind of personal character to it. It's not academic in any sense. It does have that weight, that weightiness of biblical theological analysis. And you, you can tell that I, I can tell that you've done all of that, like that you've thought about the cohesion of scripture and how it points us to Christ and how these texts work in their original context and how they fit together, like the metaphorical angles on it. So, I mean, it just, it feels like it has that kind of, I don't want to say academic, but that, that theological weightiness to it while being a clear, beautifully worded devotional book. I, I, you know, since we're on the writing question, still, I was wondering if you could just, was that a self-conscious part of the process or does that come naturally to you? Like what parts of that material just flowed from your pen as it were, and what parts were just required the work and the, the and, and doing the math and charting it out and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So um, several of the chapters started out as term papers or portions of them were term papers or maybe not. And there are none that are entirety in their entirety are term papers. But um, I have a full time job and I'm in seminary and I'm on the diaconate and I was writing a book and I was like, how can I make some of these things work together? So when I was taking, for example, um, the Pentateuch class with Dr. Lee, it was, I was taking that at the same time as the um, Hebrews to Revelation with Dr. Keene. And I wrote my Old Testament paper on um, the Day of Atonement from Leviticus and my um, Hebrews to Revelation paper on the Day of Atonement in Hebrews. Um, and then used a lot of that for, ended up using a lot of that for the book, having done the research for that. But one of the things that I was particularly interested in approaching this book was I have to read a lot of theology for class, and it's not always the best reading experience, if I can put it that way. A lot of it's heavy, and um, academic writing, I think, can be can work against itself in terms of obscuring its points rather than making them clearer. And so I really wanted to write in a way that was clear and accessible. Um, and so that was definitely intentional. I was like, how can I write theology in a way that draws people in rather than puts up a wall or creates a barrier to entry? So, and that's a part of the reason why each of the chapters starts off with the story of the feast, explaining what's happening. Cause I wanted to sort of like lure people into the, okay, well now here's the significance of that and what it means, what it meant to them, what it means to us now. Beyond being clear and accessible, you have made this appeal to all the senses. And is that, has that been a conscious part of your, of your writing endeavor? I, I think of when you're describing uh, preparing uh, food from Lao and a Lao dish and all the bringing back all the, the smells and the tastes of your experience there, you've written that vividness throughout the book. Uh, which is wonderful and, and makes scripture and the feast provided to us in scripture so real as we're taking in the feast of your book. So mm -hmm. I, I love that about it. 
Yeah, definitely intentional. Actually, um, here's a essential oil thing of hyssop. As much as I could, I tried to like get access to smells and things like that. So when I wrote about Wong Prabang and um, what it was like to eat there, I went downstairs and I opened up the spice bottles and just like smelled the ingredients. And my roommate was like, what are you doing? And I was like, this is for the book. So I would just like go and actually smell things. And like, um, there was one point where I think I, I said something smelled like the midwinter frost. And I, I think that I was describing um, hyssop. And I just like sat at my desk for like 10 minutes smelling it and being like, what does this smell like? What is the next closest thing to this that somebody else would understand? But even sort of taking a step back from that, I used to have um, a storytelling coach, like a in-person storytelling, not a writing storytelling. Um, at my old job, we did a workshop on storytelling and the woman who um, led the workshop, her sort of condition was that she get to co co-teach the workshop with the person who was hosting the workshop. So um, that came with some coaching in how to tell good stories. And I became really good friends with this woman and continued to work with her even after I wasn't at that job anymore because she has her own storytelling business. And I would go to schools in Baltimore with her um, annually and tell stories about my experience overseas. And she, she was really good about getting me to think about what are you smelling? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What's in the background? What can make this scene more real to people? And then figuring out, okay, like I understand that from an in-person storytelling situation. How can I translate that into a written storytelling situation? I remember asking a preacher that I just really respected what what this was when I was in high school, I think, what would you recommend for becoming a better preacher and theologian? He said, take a class on drama or storytelling. That's not what I was expecting. I found it to be very helpful in thinking about how do I paint this world for other people? I would love to uh, research a book by uh, just feasting various different foods and experiencing that. That really is fantastic. Uh, Alicia, I, uh, I loved your book. Um, it, it really was uh, wondrous and in, in a full experiential way. I think uh, uh, Jennifer mentioned er uh, earlier sort of the full kind of uh, sensory experience, which honestly I've, I have actually said before that a good exegete really needs to be able to know how to engage in scripture in a full, full way in terms of what the readers may have felt, saw, uh, even perhaps uh, uh, sensed in, uh, in, in a variety of different ways. And that really was fantastic. And I love the, the great integration of uh, theology and life, particularly your life, and how that's all kind of built with, you know, you kind of did this buildup of the feast, uh, the Christ and the feast, and how this impacted my life. And, and I think that was such a great thing because, you know, we, we strive so hard in our, in our classes here to be Christocentric in our classes, and it's not a hard thing to do. But I fear that we take that away from that, it, it, that this is more of an academic exercise, which in a sense it is, but I, I don't think that's the way God's people, as they were reading the uh, scriptures, read it that way. This, this is life's transforming for them. It was, it made an impact and, and, and to see that drawn in uh, and how that really ministered to you and, and these wide range of experiences that you had in your life was uh 
was uh, truly great. Uh, I guess my question is, uh, and you you addressed each festival and a feast uh, within the, uh, the wide range of the Old Testament or, and the New, and how that uh, related to, to particular aspects of your life. Is there one chapter in particular that, that really stood out as meaningful for you? There were some chapters that were really just fun to write and really great to think about creating, recreating the world that might have existed or the experience. In terms of the chapter that had the most personal connection to, I think the one on Psalm 63 about uh, the transformed wilderness, um, just because of my own experience that I talked about before, and that some of those emails that I had sent as prayer letters to my group of friends have, have returned into parts of that chapter. So I feel like there's a lot more of me in that chapter, even though it might not be obvious than in some of the other chapters where I might talk about, you know, going to a wedding or going to the theater or something like that. So I think that chapter. And another thing that made that chapter really meaningful to me is when I was going through that period, um, I had no idea what was going on and I thought it was my fault. Um, and the Christians that I talked to would ask me like, well, how are your quiet times? Or um, like, like it made it seem like I was doing something wrong. Um, and I wanted to write something so that maybe somebody who was in a similar to position to me wouldn't have the same, that they would find comfort in what I had written rather than finding condemnation what I had written or feeling like it might be their fault. So there actually was like one line that my editor and I went back and forth over in terms of fault finding and like whose fault it is. And I was like, like the one area of the book that I was like, no, I'm going to push back on this um, that we had to have a call about was like, who do we blame when things go wrong in um, our lives or in the world? And um, so we, we had a conversation about that and like cleared it up, but um I really, I felt like out of all of the chapters that I needed to get right, I needed to get that one right. So there's a, a style here. Now that we're talking about the book specifically, it, this is a performative book in that it's not just communicating ideas. You don't have 12 essays on feasting, but as you say, it's, you know, it's an invitation. Your first line in the book is you hold in your hands an invitation to a feast and then you unpack what the feast is that you're being invited to. And then, as you say, you include an RSVP at the end in the form of liturgy. And I wanted to just, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, that whole, that whole performative piece of this, like what, this is not, it, it's, I, I hesitate to say it's, it's merely devotional. I know we call this devotional writing, but as we've already said, it's deeply theological, not that devotion can't be theological. It's, it's, it's deeply researched, it seems. And yet you're doing something in it. It's not just telling something, it's, it's doing something. And that's what I mean, I guess, by performative. Um, what led you to that? What led you to writing in this way, you know, where you're really inviting the reader to not passively sit back, but to participate in the book? I think it's really easy to read a book and have your eyes scan the majority of words on each page and just, you know, keep doing that until the book is, until all of the pages are gone. That and never happens in seminary, <laughs> by the way. 
and then the book's done and it's over. And, you know, you have a conversation with someone about it, you know, two years later, and you can't quite remember exactly the finer points or what you were supposed to learn from it. And I didn't want this to be that. I wanted this, I felt like these invitations are substantial enough that they deserve our consideration. And our consideration is more than just having our eyes go across the words on the page, but um, having our words go back to God in response. Um, And so I wanted to help give people words that they could use to respond to the content of the chapter to say, you know, yes, I welcome your deliverance. Yes, I welcome your protection, things like that. Um, and so I, I really enjoy that format of writing. And when I was thinking about how can I get this to stick, um, I thought, well, this is something that people can use and that they can come back to you um, and that can help them linger a little bit longer on the themes of each chapter before moving on. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I love those liturgies at the end of, of each of the chapters. I thought they were really helpful. I, I kind of think about all the ways in which, you know, writers of, of books try to do what you just said. And I think that I, I, this isn't the, the only instance of this, but the way you brought in poetry and song and prayer as that kind of, this is our response to the invitation of God was really helpful, interesting, felt very new and fresh and like you said, it's, it's sticky. It, it, it forced you to respond to the invitation. And I, I love that, that you did that in a way that fit the theme and the genre of, of what you were, of what you were talking about. I thought that was, that was masterfully done. No question. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going here, but I, I really, I haven't felt moved like that since I, maybe the book that keeps coming to mind for me is Sinclair Ferguson's The Christian Life, where he he didn't do that kind of call to response at the end. It's a different genre. It's a different kind of thing, but he integrates all of those things, poetry and uh, respond and response and song and prayer. And, uh, and I found that forcing me to not just think about this intellectually, but as part of a ongoing relationship and invitation, invitation to, to participate in, in God's presence. Amen. You know, my teacher, Meredith Klein, in his writings, uh, you know, he, he was not, he didn't do anything what you did in terms of just sharing life experiences. That just wasn't his style in his writings. But he wrote, and, and, and I know you read some of his things. They were required readings. Mm-hmm. But um, in some of his other writings, he, he writes with um, a certain elegance. Uh, and uh, and almost an art, an art uh, artistic way, where he talks about you know biblical theology and and covenants and theology in a way that you know you read it and you think first of all this is incredibly true, and you're blessed by it, and but you you just get this sense that you love God more somehow with what he just shared, and it's not just an intellectual appreciation. You just have this sort of sensation of warmth, you know, that's building in you in this. And, and I think that's what I uh, so admired about his work. And, uh, and you know, Dr. King was mentioning earlier how, you know, the, the, the deep experience that, we, that, that he had in reading. I had the same type of a thing in, in the sense that you, you brought in your personal experiences 
described that with such uh, depth and humility, described the, I don't have a question either here, by the way, I'm just kind of uh, just recognizing the, uh, the work that you did, uh, seeing the, the, the redemption, the, the grace in Christ, but it's all described with such, you know, with, with such artistry and, and, and vulnerability and grace. It just, it really was just a great experience as a whole. Thank you. Well, I, I have a question. As, as you're going through the book, just, just for, the, for those who haven't seen it, it's, it's, it's a short introduction followed by 12 meditations on these feasts. And as, of course, as an Old Testament professor, my first thought was, well, does she cover the feasts of the Old Testament? Yes, yes, she, she rightly begins with the actual feasts. And then you kind of, it's interesting though, you, you move, I love how you do this, you move into feasts as they're described in the Psalter, like the Feast of Victory, right, of the Davidic King, and, 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 and feasts and parables, feasts in the eschaton, you know, this kind of, you move beyond sort of the formal feasts of the Old Testament Mosaic Code, and you move into how now those formal institutions are showing up in, you could say, typo, typological ways, but also just as kind of like metaphors. They, they, they are, they're umbrella terms for this sense of abundance. Um, how, did you, how did you choose the feasts or, or choose the chapters? How did you go through and map out, you know, what feast you're going to talk about and what aspect of the feast you're going to talk about? Because I was fascinated by that. As I got through the book, I was, I was really interested in how you drew those themes together. Hmm. So, Conceptually, the first feast that I wanted to write about was one from the prophets, actually. And uh, I, was, I thought, well, you can't write a book about feasts without including the ones from the Pentateuch. And I was like, oh, well, since we're, you know, since we're going. I'm sure someone has. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, my initial interest in the area of feasts came, actually, I was taking Hebrew at the time. And um, I think I was also taking a, like a seminar on Jeremiah. And I had, there was one year where I just kind of like only read Jeremiah. I would get to the end and then start over again. And just like, that was the Bible reading that I did for the year. And um, I mean, I did read some other parts, but I just really liked Jeremiah. And I just, you know, I sat there for a while. And um, there's a verse that says, I will feast the soul of the priest with, um, abundance. And I thought, first of all, why is soul singular when priest is uh, plural? <laughs> but I asked about that for, with my Hebrew TA. Um, and she said, maybe it's because it's poetic. But when I was looking into the Hebrew, I saw that the word for abundance was the word for fat. And so then that got me off on a tangent of figuring out, you know, what is fat doing in the Bible? Why does it mean abundance? Why is he giving why is he feasting? How do you feast somebody's soul? Why the priests? Like, what does this mean? And um, so it was that that sort of began my exploration of the idea of feasting in scripture. And then as I continued, once I finally got out of Jeremiah and continued <laughs> to read the rest of the Bible, I saw that it was the theme that showed up in a lot of places. And I was like, oh, I think there's, there's more here. And just sort of began to become curious about what why God would use that imagery in the way that he had in including it in um, the scripture. So 
and started from that chapter on the Feasts of Restoration. Um, and then I was really interested in the Proverbs, um, Lady Wisdom's Feast. Initially, that was supposed to be chapter one, because I was like, chronologically, wisdom came before everything else. So that should be first, right? Um, but then we moved the chapters to canonical order, which probably makes more sense. But so the chapter on Psalm 23, I remember when I was writing that, I was like, why in the world are you writing about Psalm 23? Everybody knows this, like, this isn't going to be new to anyone. You are shooting yourself in the foot by trying to say something interesting about Psalm 23. I had a personal interest in Psalm 63 um, because I loved the imagery of God spreading a feast in the wilderness and my own personal experience. I included the pilgrimage feasts and the other feasts from the um, Pentateuch for like to me, obvious reasons, like how, how can you have a book without these in here? And then um, another thing that I'm kind of passionate about is the fact that a lot of people are not super familiar with the Old Testament, or at least relative to people's comfort in the New Testament. And so that's a part of the reason why I included the um, feast from Nehemiah. Because um, I was like, most people probably like don't know a lot about this book don't know its contribution to the overall storyline of the Bible. So I would like to include this. Um, and I felt like I needed to have something from every major section of the Bible. And then in terms of the New Testament, I think my um, deacon heart sort of came out in the chapter on Feasts of Mercy. When I, I was taking the Gospels when I wrote that chapter and that chapter was actually what I an, or a different version of it is what I submitted as my term paper but the idea of um, social status and um, sort of inviting people who are um, marginalized or on the outskirts or um, disabled or things like that I felt like oh I feel like this is something that people need to hear and this isn't something that people hear a lot so I wanted to include that and then the other ones I feel like are kind of I would get criticism if I didn't include them, like <laughs> write a book without talking about communion. <laughs> and maybe, maybe there's actually things that I forgot that people will criticize me for. Like, how could you write this book and not include this? But I felt like the prodigal son was like something that I, you know, had to be included and had a, a valuable contribution to make about how God wants to be approached. So well, you did a great job of kind of crossing the historical literary barrier, I guess. So there's there's the historical institutions that you mention rightly and properly, but also recognizing that there's this huge literary world. There's a whole imaginarium about the feasts in the Bible, and they're informed by these institutions, but they they kind of stretch it and go beyond it and expand on the idea. I thought it was, it was, it was very well done, and uh, I uh, really benefited from it. I love the feast on wisdom. I mean, I never would have even thought of that. Uh, I'll tell you the two things I've genuinely learned and, and appreciated was that well, that was one. I never would have envisioned that, you know, here's Lady Wisdom and she is offering up the entree of, of discernment, of understanding, of discipline and telling the young um, naive boy, you know, feast on these things because these are great. And, and that, that just was a great, great image. And I never would have thought it that way. And, and and I love that. And the the other thing I learned that I just wanted to share, just to encourage you, is um, the uh, imagery of the Passover 
uh, in light of the feasting in Egypt and how as they are going through the trials of the wilderness, they, they remember that and thus tempted to go back. And part of the reason they allured to that was because they had forgotten the, the festival of Passover and they stopped doing it. If you stop doing that, then the only thing you're going to remember is what it was like before, which is more of an allure towards uh, destruction and, and, and sin. And, and, and uh, I so appreciated the, that imagery. You know, these feasts are, you know, communion. Uh, they are bonding moments with God. Uh, if we don't do that and remember that, it's so easy to be led astray. And, and um, I never would have thought of it that way before. I never really put the two together. And, and, and that was something that I really appreciated and learned. Alicia, you've given us so much on the theology of the feast, both in its practice and metaphor in scripture. It's a really excellent motif for teaching through your experience and giving others a place to meet you with their experience so that they can find words and voice, you know, in the midst of suffering or joy or whatever. I'm wondering if in addition to those things, this process of writing and publishing the book has given you any reflections on our practice of spreading feasts, of meals as community building and so on. Have you had thoughts about that along the way? I have for sure. The communal nature of feasting was one of the aspects that was most interesting to me. And not just that people are together and eating, but the ways that there was provision for people on the margins in several of the different um, stories, whether that was um, sharing a meal um, at Sukkot or inviting a smaller family to participate during the Passover or leaving the edges of your corner ungleaned um, for the Feast of First Fruits, or sharing the sweets and the wine during Nehemiah. And so that's why the end of the book sort of talks about our response being coupled with becoming um, inviters. So we're not just responding to God and what he's done for us, but that sort of as an outgrowth of that, we respond to our neighbor differently. And yes, there is um, an element of we are drawn together in, um, you know, like communion, obviously, maybe, maybe the most obvious one that we are drawn together in our sort of remembrance and um, of feasts and practice of feasting. Like it's hard to think of someone feasting on their own. But there's also a recognition for those who are not able to feast on their own and who would otherwise be left out of that experience to make sure that they're included. And that was that was really important to me, which is why the book ends the way that it does. And part of the reason why the Luke 14 section was in there. And again, sort of, you know, going back to my deacon, <laughs> deacon heart, I was thinking maybe people in my church will like other people on the diaconate will read this and that this might be um, helpful and getting people to think outside of themselves and to see that abundance isn't just um, something that we hoard, but something that we share. That's wonderful. This is practical in the deepest way. It's shaping of our practices and what a gift. Thank you, Alicia, for this resource. This is a true tool and a gift to the church. And I, I recommend it highly um, to all of our listeners. If you want to follow Alicia's work on Twitter. You can follow her at at 
Eat, Cry, Mercy, and you can read her blog where she regularly contributes uh, at feetcrymercy.com. And so I'd encourage you to do that. But most of all, I'd encourage you to pick up Invitations to Abundance, published by Harvest House, March 1. That's right, March 1, just yesterday for us at the recording time. Um, so just came out, a uh, brand new resource, and check it out. I think you will benefit deeply from it. Thank you so much, Alicia, for being with us this week. Thank you for having me. Everybody, we've enjoyed this conversation. It's been great to be with you. Um, I look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, take care. you did a good job because a lot of people know about it and are talking about it. And that's great. Thank you. Are you happy with it? You're not regretting the book already? No, I'm not. I, um, I read through some of the reviews that some people left on Goodreads yesterday. And um, it was really, really encouraging to see um, people connect with different parts of the book and And you're emotionally, emotionally healthy. (laughs) because you cannot you can read your own work and not be critical of it and just be and be happy with it there is there's this like one phrase in the beginning of the chapter on lady wisdom that like the copy editor changed one of the words and I was reading it during one of my readings yesterday and I really wanted to revert back which word was that Oh, um, it says that she, re- well, okay. I think the the official version says she um, gets ready for more people. Um, but I had said she readies for more people. Oh, and I see. I, I prefer the <laughs> ready. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like it. It's very Hebrew. Take a noun, make it a verb. Hmm. I, remember, stem. I like it. I remember I did this little post for TGC and they, um, I was talking about like revelation as a chiasm and I, I worded the sentence as a chiasm. And they changed. Yeah, you know, it was just a little Easter egg there. <laughs> like just, it's just there for me. No one else will notice, but they changed it. Oh, that's oh, the one. Yeah.